Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. When you have an opportunity to get intimate with people, to really spend a lot of time with them and see how they work and be a fly on the wall in their office watching, listening, and not talking, you find out that oftentimes they make decisions for very personal reasons. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. Business Week once called Ken Auletta, the James Bond of the media world. The Columbia Journalism Review declared no other reporter has covered the news and communication businesses thoroughly. Today, I'm fortunate to have Ken join me on Good Company. Ken has written the Annals of Communication columns for The New Yorker since 1992. He's the author of 12 books, including five national bestsellers, of which he is lauded for his ability to bring scholarly research together with journalistic immediacy. And he's hard at work on his 13th book, which we'll talk about in a bit. Ken is an astute critic, passionate observer, clever interrogator, masterful writer, and perhaps most importantly, a great friend. Ken, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to do it. Ken, as I said in that really understated introduction, yeah, really I understated. Thank yeah, you. I can't say enough. And and I'm honest, I'm looking up at my bookshelf right now, and I see a book called The Highwaymen, and I see a book called Googled, and I see a book called Frenemies, just right here on my shelf. And those are three that that just happen to be close proximity to me. And I've had the good fortune of spending time with you on both sides of this. I've had the good fortune of spending time with you, with you asking me questions, and damn, you're good at it. Uh, And here I get a chance to ask you questions. But you've earned the accolades and the kudos you've received in in this industry as it regards your, your really role as being the consummate observer of media. And over the years, you've interviewed some of the most amazing people in the world at the intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology. Just to name a few, Bill Gates, Elizabeth Holmes, Ted Turner, Sheryl Sandberg, Rupert Murdoch, the list goes on and on. And Ken, like many, I've been watching a lot more television over the last several months, and that good-looking face of yours shows up on a lot of a lot of shows in the news annals talking about media and the history and the players. Talk to me about being a fly on the wall. You get people to say things that just are amazing. What's your secret sauce? I think a number, number of ingredients help you get people to cooperate. The first is going to the person and convincing them that you're really interested in understanding them. You're not interested in gotcha headlines. You're not interested in one day in, that next day out. You're doing a long-term project, which will take months or years and multiple interviews, and you want to understand who they are and what they do. 
That's key. Second thing is, if you know the industry, you've covered it for a long period of time, and you know these people, since you've covered the industry, you've, you've encountered them in various guises over the years, there's a comfort level in that. Third is if you're writing for The New Yorker or you're writing a book, that, that automatically, particularly The New Yorker, carries a prestige element uh, and the security of knowing that there's fact checkers uh, behind you to check the facts. Fourth is people's vanity. I mean, people don't, I don't have subpoena power. And, but if you're talking to people who are proud of what they do and think they're good at what they do, you can appeal to their vanity, vanity to tell the world what you do. And that gets you inside for the fly on the wall. Ken, what's so interesting, when I practiced law early on in my career, I would always admonish a, a client that when they're in a deposition, it's not a coffee clatch. You know, just answer the questions, yes or no. Don't do the work for the other guy. Don't do the work for the other lawyer. Just answer the questions they ask. What I know from personal experience with you, you really grease the skids. You really make somebody comfortable. That's a real art. And damn, you did it with me. So I know it's good. You built a trust. And I guess maybe that's it. Let me turn that into a question then, Ken. Is that it? That you build trust with that person? And as you said, the prestige of the New Yorker or, you know, you're writing a book. It, you're not doing this for, you know, gossip. But I, th I think there are a number of elements to, to answer that, Michael. One is, is that if you go into an interview, uh, particularly starting out as an interview, acting like a dentist who wants to drill your teeth, um, no one's going to respond to you in any complimentary or empathetic way. They're going to hide. They're going to recoil. They're going to resist. And, and if you begin by asking your toughest questions, the first encounter you have with the person, you're going to set up a wall and they're not going to cooperate. I usually, when I do interviews for a long project where I'm going to be interviewing that person multiple times, I'll usually begin by biography questions. Tell, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about growing up. And it, it creates a level of comfort. And it's not a ruse. It's not a trick I'm playing on the person. I really am using that to better understand them. For instance, when I covered the Microsoft antitrust trial in 1999 and 2000 in the Federal District Court in Washington, the judge of that case, uh, Judge Jackson, I had 12 hours of interviews with Judge Jackson for that New Yorker profile and then the, the, the book I wrote from that. In the first four hours of our interview, he told me about his life and he told me about growing up in Washington. His father was in the government. He went to work for, for President-elect Nixon in 1968-69, and he was real enthused. And then he found out that, that Nixon was a liar, and, and it affected his whole view of government and of life and the way he looked at people in a courtroom. And, and he was so broken by that. And he then described what he saw when he watched Bill Gates' deposition in that trial. And Bill Gates was, was not answering the questions directly. He seemed arrogant. And from that, that first four hours, not the last eight hours, I really learned more about how Judge Jackson made that very human decision that he didn't believe Bill Gates. There was no jury. He decided alone the verdict. And he didn't believe Bill Gates. And I think when he saw Bill Gates, and it's unfair to Bill Gates, he saw Richard Nixon.
Interesting. Interesting. Ken, so Elizabeth Holmes, I met her. I was at a couple of places where I heard her speak. She was odd. You obviously, you, you got it early on. What did you know and when did you know it? I, I didn't know. I think, I, you know, she, I, I was not charmed by her, but I was impressed that she was a very good listener. In fact, one of the problems I had with her, she would constantly be asking me questions. And I had to interrupt her and say, excuse me, I'm here to ask you questions. Stop, <laughs> stop questioning me. But I thought she, you know, if in fact her idea worked, it would be brilliant. I mean, you, you, people go to drugstores and get their blood tested much cheaper than, than they do now. And, and they don't have to give up a day of work to do it. I mean, it'd be fabulous, right? So I thought it was great. But did I know she was a fraud? No, I did not. And do I regret that I didn't know she was a fraud when I wrote the piece? Yes. But on the other hand, I had skepticism, which is in the piece, which is what John Carrier, who wrote a brilliant book, Bad Blood, said triggered his, his suspicion uh, initially. But she blew it by me. I did not know she was a fraud. Such an amazing story. Who else? What would you pick? Your top three. I'll tell you one that would be a surprise to you. It was... Uh, there was a guy by the name of McClandish Phillips who people thought was the greatest writer at the New York Times. And even Gay Talese, who was a great writer, said McClandish Phillips was a better writer than I. And one day McClandish Phillips left the New York Times and I heard that he was outside Columbia University handing out Jesus literature. He had become evangelical. And he was a leader in an evangelical group. And I said, I wonder what's happened to McClandish Phillips and why he gave up the times to become a preacher. And so I did a profile of McClandish Phillips and I spent time with him and I, I wound up having great respect for him. But here's what I learned. He had done a front page story for the New York Times. He was reporting and he discovered that the head of the American Nazi party lived in Queens and was really a secret Jew. Huh. And so he interviews this guy at a diner in Queens in the early hours of the morning, and he tells him, I know about your past. And he's looking at this leader of the American Nazi party who has a knife and fork by him, and he has his hand on the knife. And McClandish Phillips says, oh my God, he's gonna stab me. And he says to McClandish Phillips, the reporter, if you write this story, I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit suicide. Clannish Phillips goes back to the paper. Abe Rosenthal was the editor. And he tells me the story. He said, great, screaming front page headline about and story. What happens? The head of the American Nazi Party commits suicide, as he said he would. Clannish Phillips suddenly is burdened by guilt that I've killed someone. And I mean, I think it's a legitimate story. I would have run the story if I were the editor. I would have written it if I were McClandish Phillips. But it's a sensitive guy who said, I can't be a journalist anymore. I'm taking people's lives. So he went out and did God's work, he thought. That was one of the favorite stories I've ever done. Amazing story. And on the media side, from, you know, the Murdochs to the Redstones to the, you've covered them all. What stands out? Well, I, I remember uh, one of the things that stands out is, and it actually is a theme that runs through a lot of reporting I've done. I call it the human factor. And that is that when you have an opportunity to get intimate with people, to really spend a lot of time with them and see how they work and be a fly on the wall in their office watching, listening, and not talking, you find out that oftentimes they make decisions for very personal reasons. 
not the business reason. For instance, one of my favorite examples of this is John Malone. John Malone was then the head of telecommunications, Inc., the largest cable company in the United States, based out of Denver. Very successful guy, feared, he was called Darth Vader by Vice President Al Gore. And he never did interviews, and he, he allows me to do a profile. So I'm in his office, flying on the wall for several weeks and interviewing people, had, had total access. And I noticed one of the things that happens is at noon every day, there's no phone on his desk, by the way, no TV in the room. And every day around noon, I hear a phone ring and he'd open up a drawer and pull out a red phone and he'd say, yes, dear, I'll be right there, dear. Hangs up the phone. At five o'clock, the same thing happened. Yes, dear, I'll be right there. I said, who is that? He said, that's my wife. And I meet her at the gym. I meet her for lunch and then I meet her at five at the gym every day. And I said, so tell me, Mr. Malone, I said, you sold Telecommunications Inc. for, as I remember, it was $34 billion. He said, I, obviously the money was one of the reasons. I said, is that the only reason you sold Telecommunications Inc.? He said, no, it's not. I said, what was the other reason? He said, my wife. I said, what do you mean your wife? He said, my wife said she would leave me if I didn't spend more time with her. And I was just preoccupied with my work. I had promised when, you had promised John when you married me, you would always be there and you're not there, you're, you're absent. And he said, I love my wife. And I decided I had to change my life. Bingo, I mean, you know. Darth Vader, Darth Vader has a soft spot. But it happens repeatedly, you'll find as you spend time with people, the human side comes out and you see that. Now, there's always a danger, you, be, you make them too human and you miss some of the, the, the tough so things they do. It's just so interesting as you get into the personal side, the personal relationships, you really get to understand the person and, and the motivations in a different way. And that's the art, that's also the art of Ken Oletta because again, as having been a subject of spending three years or, or more with you, in, in, in one set of facts, I'm proud to say we were friends before, but I don't mind saying this publicly. You became an extremely close friend. But, you know, and it's interesting. You're, you're an exception. Uh, I, most of the people I profile, I don't become friends with. I mean, I keep a distance. And, and you're one of the few because you're a Hamish guy. I mean, I enjoy your company and you tell good jokes. Sometimes <laughs> the same one twice. but That comes from being old. That's it. I forget. You know what, Ken? We should just do what my dad used to tell me. Let's just put numbers on the jokes. Number 37, and then we know, you know? I know how thorough you are. I did have the experience of spending time with you when you were writing Googled uh, The End of the World as We Know It, as I recall was the exact title. And, and so I did get an understanding of how deep you want to go as a journalist, as a reporter, as your taking that logic, but you, you don't stop with, okay, yes, you have that knowledge base that allows you to really drill in. So you drilled into the advertising business and you spent three plus years doing that. You know a lot about a lot, but you now know a lot about the advertising industry. I'm curious, and you did a, an epilogue, you know, a year later, kind of brought things current. We're even now, what, two, three years out. And we're at a moment and the moment is driven by just the market, but it's driven by COVID. It's driven by Black Lives Matter. It's driven by the, the awareness and the opening of our all of our aperture 
you know, relative to the issues of the moment. Do you stay involved when you move on? What I do is, is moving from planet to planet. And I was on the advertising planet, but now I'm on the Harvey Weinstein planet. You have to move on some, but, you, but you've learned and you're curious. And for instance, one of the things that you left out of your equation, what's happening in the advertising business, which I think is, is actually as, as menacing to advertising as is the, the coronavirus. And, and that is what places like Netflix do and HBO before them, and Amazon Prime, and Apple, and Hulu Plus, is they train people to say, we don't have, you don't have to watch ads. And, and ads become, become viewed as an intrusion, as an interruption. And if it's a menace to the advertising world, it's a menace, which is one of the thesis of my book. It's a menace to the media, because without advertising dollars, the media dries up and dies. Taking that thread, let's talk about that. We're at a moment now where you're a consumer. You watch television. Are you at a point yet where you think it's okay for brands to be back into the business of being hucksters? And I'll bring it even closer to home. Amanda Hess wrote a piece in the New York Times about six weeks, eight weeks ago, and it said, it's a crisis, but don't forget to spend. And the message and the interesting point that was made in the article was, if you look at brands today, take quick service for a moment. You know, normally they're going to show you beautiful food shots. Now they're showing you the frontline workers. Brands have taken a different tack. But we all know at some point they're going to come back. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I know it's not okay now. I don't know when it will be okay. Um, I, I've seen lots of ads that promote workers and, and care, care providers, which are very artfully done. When they're not artfully done, I resent them. And I find, I find it manipulative and, and transparently so. When, when it's artfully done, I don't find that to be true. But in general, I find myself, and I think I'm more typical, and that's why I think this is a menace to the advertising world. I find myself impatient with ads. Stop interrupting me. Now, let me ask you a question. That's true, Ken, for most of us, because we're being trained the wrong way. We're being untrained, and then we're being trained. But if it were, and this is the age-old question of the last few years, if it was a product or service you were really interested in, if it was addressable, if it knew, if people knew that Ken Auletta liked tennis, and it, it was an ad about a new tennis racket, and I know you love to play tennis, that ad might not annoy you, just to be clear. It'd be useful. But then you get to the other question that, that threatens advertising, which is privacy. And you watch what, what Apple has just done, saying, giving people a choice. You want to prevent the advertiser and the apps from tracking you. And if you say yes, they won't know that information about me about tennis. And then you're going to get hockey ads and you don't play hockey. <laughs> yeah, right. Ken, this is where our worlds come together. So I'm going to ask you a, a, a two-part question. Number one, your thoughts about how advertisers, again, as a consumer and as a, as a buyer of services and products from some of these advertisers, number one. And number two, I just saw a piece in the paper about, about Vice taking a position against advertisers who are unwilling to have their brands associated with this news This has always in some been way. the case. If there was a plane crash in your American Airlines, it was automatic that the networks would not run your ad next to in that news slot because you don't want your friendly product in an unfriendly news environment. 
And and so that's a, that could be very excessive and, and, and reek of some form of censorship. Do you think brands, and again, this isn't an advertising question, this is a consumer question. Would you judge brands for being associated to news or is news like the new sports? That's where eyeballs are. And if you're a brand, you want to follow the eyeballs. And if the eyeballs, the consumers are spending a good deal of their time watching news, then maybe you have to relax the standards. I guess that's my question. What, what do you think? But if you relax the standards, you can also relax the type of ad you do. I mean, it may be that you design an ad that, that is not offensive or somehow is complicitous with the news. But one of the things, I mean, you increasingly see, and as a consumer, I don't like, is you see these brands leaning over backwards to show that they're good citizens. And I find that manipulative, usually. I find it very transparent. And inauthentic. Inauthentic is the better word, which matters to in terms of the effectiveness of an ad. So, I mean, if you could do it and create an effect, authentic ad, and, and it, it, it's different and doesn't do a hard sell, great. It used to be 30 years ago, the thing that we in the, new, in the news business worried about was the pressure from advertisers, the power of advertisers. Then 15 years ago or so, people like me who wrote about the media, we, what did we worry about? We worried much more about the people who signed our checks. Did they really care about news? And do they understand what journalism really was? Today, the, the bigger worry is we worry about our, our readers and our consumers. Are they going to blackball us? Are they going to tell us we can't run this ad? Are they going to create a, a controversy about what we're doing? And there are blatant excesses to that that we witness every day. Ken, I, I want to switch gears to the current moment in, in the current time in Ken Auletta's life. You're working on a Harvey Weinstein book. And you have history here. I mean, you've, you've profiled Harvey Weinstein before. First of all, when's the book scheduled to come out? 21. 2021. Next year sometime. One thing I know, because we caught up for a lunch right after, you sat through the trial in New York every day. You've covered lots of Hollywood scandals in, in your career. What makes this different? And then I also want to come back on the time you spent and the role you played in Scandalous. One thing that's happened because of Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and Roger Ailes and Matt Lauer is that the, what's acceptable has changed. And the casting couch is not acceptable. The, the, the notion that you could trade, do me a favor and give me some sex and I'll give you a role in the movie, that's not acceptable, sorry. And even if I didn't rape you, even if I didn't physically abuse you, it's not acceptable. So Ken, on CNN, The Special Scandalous, which was the expose on uh, the National Enquirer. First of all, a tribute to you again. It seems like in many cases, but this one particularly, you kind of uncovered the, the story. But also, as I look back on the Ronan Farrow story and Catch and Kill, and they mend, kind of blend together for me, you, you seem to be the person who really got to the heart of it and understood it. And almost inspired Ronan Farrow to go to the next stage. Ronan had come to me. I had tried for years to nail down whether Harvey was a sexual predator. I believed he was, but I, I, I couldn't get any woman to go on the record. And I tried a number of times, including when I profiled him in 2002 in The New Yorker. Ronan came to me in 2017. I didn't know him. He told me 
he, what he was doing. He sounded like a reasonable guy. I gave him access to my papers, which were on file at the New York Public Library. He called me up in the summer and said, can I interview? I said, you'll have to come out to Bridgehampton where I'm finishing Frenemies, the book I was then doing. And he comes out and he spends like two hours with me and he, he has the goods. He finally has gotten women to talk. I was stunned by that. And I said, what's your next step? He says, I, I go to, I meet with the head of NBC News, the president of NBC News, the second week, the first week in August. Uh, so I call him the second week in August. And I said, so how'd you do? Because I thought this guy finally is going to break the story that all of us had tried, some of us had tried to break for years. He said, well, they turned me down. And I can take it somewhere else, but who would want it? My only role was basically to bring him together with David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. Turned out to be an important role, Ken. Yeah, no, no. And Ronan was generous in terms of what he said, but but he did the work. I didn't do it. And he, he did what I couldn't do and others couldn't do over the years, getting women to talk. And to, to get people to talk, particularly about something so personal, is really hard. And Ronan has that gift. And so do you. Thank you. <laughs> Ken, you've spent so much time in the media. If you look around the corner, what do you see on the horizon? Are the big guys going to get bigger? Well, I tell you, I'm, I find myself, again, humbly saying, be careful about looking around the corner. For instance, if you asked me that question five months ago or a year ago when Rupert Murdoch sold Fox to Disney, you would say clearly he saw what, what around the corner and he saw that Disney was big. So he's saying, my God, you have to be a giant like Disney in order to succeed. And then over the next several months after that deal, you would have said, my God, Disney is going to be in the mix. Yet today, because of the pandemic, you say Disney's got some problems here. They're a customer facing organization. And the advertising has, has slipped. ESPN, no sports. That slipped. That was a big generator of, of income. Well, it's interesting because the integrated model that Disney obviously is the, the granddaddy of with having theme parks and movies and sports and cruise ships and the like, that diversification was amazing. Similarly with Comcast, NBC, Universal having theme parks and, and movies and you know the like, you look at that and go in normal times, that's great. And we happened to hit the moment when it wasn't. But I, you know, if I'm a betting person, I would bet the farm on companies like that and their ability to come out of this, you know, in a different way. We may be at Disneyland with masks for a while, but we're still going to go back to Disneyland. If you look, when you look around the corner, one of the things you have to spot around that corner is the digital giants, and they will continue to be strong. I mean, I just think of Amazon. I mean, this amazing company. Look, even at ad sales, I mean, they're growing faster in, in selling ads than Google and Facebook are because they have more data and more information than anyone has. Yeah. And I guess the final thing, Ken, is just the future of work. You've not been an office bound guy since I know you. What do you think? I worry about, you know, I can't do my job through Zoom. I can't do my job over the telephone. If I want to be a fly on the wall, I got to be in someone's office. I got to watch, be able to watch them. And so it affects me as a journalist to do my job. I can, can I do phone interviews? Can I do Zoom interviews? Yes. Is it the same? I don't believe it is. I guess we're adjusting, but it's not the same. Ken Oletta, I want to thank you for joining me today. And as I said, uh, you're the best. 
and I'm honored to call you a friend. Likewise. Thank you, Michael. I'm Michael Kasson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Jessica Kreinchich.